Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Mark Keel. Mark is the founder and chief scientific officer at Genomenon, where he shepherds the product vision and implementation of the mastermind suite of software tools. He completed an MD-PhD fellowship in molecular genetic pathology at the University of Michigan. In this episode, Mark describes the genesis of his vision to organize the world's molecular data and his journey to realize the promise of genomic medicine. Let's get right into it. Hey everybody, it's my pleasure to be here today with Dr. Mark Keel. Mark is the founder and, and CSO of Genomenon. Uh, Mark and I have known each other now, gosh, probably about five years. Our companies have sort of grown up together, and I'm absolutely thrilled to see uh, Genomenon claiming a, a place among really the top companies in its field. Mark, why don't you tell us about what you're working on and how you would describe your field? Yeah, sure. I, I remember those days fondly in our both of our infancies, and, and to see how far we've come is, is um, really gratifying. So I'm the chief science officer and um, chaperone of the vision of Genomenon. What we're working toward quite successfully at this point is organizing the world's genomic information. So we're properly an information company and our focus is on managing the tsunami of genomic information that is being published in the medical literature. So when I was training myself in my graduate student days and my postdoc days in the ways of genetics and genomics, I rode the wave of the next generation DNA sequencing revolution. And I matriculated into graduate school right as the human genome sequencing project was being wrapped up. And there was this sort of pregnant pause from the research community as if to say, well, now what? And I really saw there being great potential in better organizing and serving up the information that was going to result from that research, both to stimulate more research and to inform clinical diagnosis. So to put a finer point on that, Mastermind is Genomenon's product, and we are organizing genetic and genomic information from scientific articles, keeping up to date on a weekly basis, having a very broad-based understanding and a very deep deep connection into that uh, medical literature. That makes a lot of sense. As I, a scientist, I can understand that need. Keeping up with the literature is, is insane. How do you guys keep up with the literature? Is this something where you've got an army of people in PubMed, or are you um, automating this sort of work? That's a great question. So we've obviously gone through a number of instars in, to our present day capability, but that was the critical realization was that a manual process could not keep pace. There's this sort of decades-long backstore of genetic and genomic information that you would need to address, but then it clearly does not stop. And again, with the next generation sequencing revolution would only get more brisk, the, the flow of information in the medical literature. And so we have a combination approach, which I think makes us unique. We have a, a phase of automated annotation and organization of this information, disease gene associations and disease variant associations from the medical literature, and then annotations around clinical significance and, and functional impact. So that's automated. And then what I think is really um, has 
has been really critical to our success is we then refine that automated data deliverable with a manual review. So the manual review is not an army, but it is a small contingent of data scientists internally. And the automated organization of that evidence is further expedited by building out tools that we can use to more rapidly understand the information that we've automated. So a perfect example would be the ACMG or American College of Medical Geneticists framework for interpreting genetic variants in, in the context of rare disease. That's a very complicated framework and uh, it requires organizing a lot of different lines of evidence. One of those, the, the major one being the evidence from the medical literature. Well, we've automated the organization of all of that data and we feed that information to our curators who are very rapidly able to understand the meaningfulness of these variants in the context of a disease or a phenomena or a drug response. And so when you're thinking about like the ACMG framework, do you then build kind of a rules-based system or, or is it simply a guidepost for your curators? It is a, a sort of skeletal rules-based framework. And then the curators are using their intuition and their awareness of the disease and of the, because the ACG framework is not perfectly ossified and there are clients who have different interpretations of the framework and different focuses of, of interest on that framework, we then feed that knowledge to our curators who can refine what they interpret. So let me give you a specific example. I like to refer to the triad of evidence. This is true also of oncology, but the triad of evidence for the ACMG framework, and that is the population frequency, so we can understand whether this is a common polymorphism or a very rare variant. So that's one arm of the triad. The predictive models of pathogenicity, that's another arm. Those two alone are almost never sufficient to give you a pathogenic or disease-calling interpretation for a variant. What's really needed to unlock the ACMG framework is the empirical, peer-reviewed information from the medical literature to assess things like have authors studied the functional consequence of this variant or have there been cohort analyses or pedigree analyses done or even single cases found of this variant being associated with disease. And that information can only come from the medical literature and as I said has been buried there for some decades and continues to be published on a weekly basis. And we've captured all of that through our automated process and serve that up to our manual curation process. So we managed to kind of just trip into the deep end of the pool here and get really into kind of what you guys are doing. But I'd like to zoom out and think a little bit about the Mastermind product. So you mentioned that you're, you're capturing disease gene and disease variant relationships from the literature. From a user's point of view, put us in a user's shoe. Who is that user? You mentioned clients. Who are your clients? And what are they using the tool for? And, and what do they actually get from it? You you brought up the what is now the ancient past of when we started. So my my background is in molecular genetic pathology as a clinical diagnostician. And so my original concept for the company and for the product mastermind was that we would rise to that need in the clinic. I've often said that the Human Genome Project made it seem like it was possible that human genome sequencing data could could be valuable in clinical circumstances. The next generation DNA sequencing revolution made it seem like it was plausible that we could actually use that on a per patient basis. But this bioinformatic 
bottleneck was really the, the sticking point. And I started Genomenon with a view toward making leveraging human genome sequencing to become practical by improving the, the ability that we have to interpret it with rapid turnarounds and high accuracy. So Genomenon in particular Mastermind was developed with that view in mind to make it easier for clinicians to interpret the meaningfulness of a specific single variant that they saw in their patient or a collection of variants that they saw in a gene assay or gene panel or otherwise in a whole exome or whole genome. But what we found is that where there is that need and there's a great need, there's just as big a need on the other side in pharma to inform development of novel therapeutics once the pharma um, researchers have understood what the pathogenic mechanisms of disease are. And so where what I said we started out selling in the clinic was a sort of tree view, individual variants at a time, assessing whether they've been published before and if so, in what disease context and what do we do about them in the way of diagnosing uh, disease or assessing prognosis of that disease or marrying that genotype with a therapy. In pharma, we take a forest view and we can see broad strokes um, with all the underpinning details. This gene or these five genes or this whole gene pattern pathway is associated with disease by virtue of all of these mutations or these gene-gene fusion events or these copy number alterations or these protein-protein interactions. Mastermind has aggregated all of that data as a consequence of looking for those variants to inform the clinic, the clinical diagnosis paradigm. And now we're seeing that, that information from Mastermind being used to great effect in pharma. That's fantastic. Unlocking another industry and another use case on kind of the other side of the drug development spectrum is yeah. really key. Your information, tell me where it's coming from. You refer to the medical literature. One of your claims is that you guys go beyond the abstract. So can you talk a little bit about uh, where you're digging for all this information? Having come from research, I'm an MD, PhD by training. Um, my postdoc was in profiling hematopoietic malignancies, so lymphomas and leukemias, and understanding what variants, what fusion events drove the pathogen of those diseases using exome and genome sequencing. I recognize the importance of the empirical literature in sifting through all of that data. And I also recognized as a graduate student, as a postdoc, that it was extremely time-consuming for you to go out to that data. And so the, the spirit with which we started to work on Genomon was that data should come instead to the researcher, the yeah. clinician. And so the, the approach was to, as faithfully as we could, to mimic the manual review process mm -hmm. of understanding what places are their meaningful uh, data points. What do you assess when you go there and how do you ensure that you've got the right thing when you found it? And so all of those pieces we have recapitulated in our automated process. So titles and abstracts are indexed nightly from PubMed so that we understand the sort of landscape of the evidence in the literature. And once we recognize that there's something meritorious in, in a given title or an article or given title or given abstract for a specific article, then we seek out um, the richer information in the full text and the supplemental data. And the supplemental data has been a recent development. We Our primary focus was on the full text, and we, we captured a very large corpus of information that we indexed, almost like a phone directory, so that a single variant in the clinical workflows, you could tell where that information had been published and what the context was. That's in the clinic, and in the research realm, you could see a whole constellation 
population of variants that were found in one gene, sometimes many thousands, and all of the different places, the different papers where that evidence was published. What we had found when we got into it, particularly in the clinic, was that supplemental material was an untapped vein in our gold mine. And so we had heard from particularly... Isn't, number isn't that almost like, in retrospect, duh? You know, remember in, back in the day in the lab when you had to like go digging through supplemental to figure out what anyone had done? <laughs> That is fair. You put more bluntly than my colleagues had, had put it. So um, <laughs> my lobby was that if it's not surfaced in the full text, not enough had been done to prove its worth. And so what you're seeing with NGS, sure, okay, very large data dump, very large unexpurgated, unorganized collections of data from these sequencing efforts. And I perhaps I was too biased from my pathology training, where our focus was on oncology. And if the information was only found in the supplemental material, the pathologist in oncology was unmotivated to change their conclusion. What we're seeing with um, more engagement from the constitutional genetics community is that that sometimes can be the difference that's made in, in a diagnosis because large cohorts of rare disease patients, if they have found a mutation in a given gene, and the only place that that information can be published is in the supplemental data, finding that can really change the, the interpretation of the variant. And so I, for the longest time, I resisted, mostly because it's very technically challenging to get that information from the supplemental data. I was focused more on what I consider the pinnacle of evidence in the right. full text. So <laughs> you're quite right to say, duh, in retrospect, right. but in the moment we were facing those headwinds. And so we had to make a strategic decision to not focus on it until the customers that were using our software in the clinic and increasingly the rare disease um, mm -hmm. in pharma insisted on it. And so we made a very muscular effort to capture that information as well. But, but you raise an interesting point, which is in principle, if it's in the supplement, it, you know, it didn't warrant figure one through seven. And so do you treat that evidence differently? Do you guys have a way of kind of scoring or ranking evidence? Great question. So I, I know that we're gonna we're about to talk about the elephant in the room. So you said earlier that AI was a buzzword. I just hope that we don't shock ourselves to death by talking about it too much. But I want to share with you a little bit about our approach to computational intelligence. And this is a good way to, to begin that conversation. So I like to think of there being tiers of evidence. When we talk about was it found in a paper, yes or no, you should always have that with a hedge that yes, but what was said about it or how much credence was given by the authors of that publication. And you intimated that by saying if they did just put it in the supplemental data, how informative could it be? Well, sometimes, particularly in the rare disease context, it's very informative. But other times, particularly in the oncology circumstance, it's not very informative at all. It's just sort of also ran information. It's basically set dressing for the main event, which is in the full text. So it's always context dependent. But like I said before, there's a sort of hierarchy of evidence. And if the only piece of evidence that you have just happens to be in the supplemental data, the approach that Mastermind takes is to show that to the user, to let them know where it came from, and then in the context of our software, to have them come to their own conclusions. But in the context of the very large pre-curated data projects that we do, um, we come to those conclusions with the goals of the client in mind. And so to finish answering your question, uh -huh. one of the mechanisms by which we 
we assess the, the cogency of evidence from the literature is where in the paper the evidence occurred. So was it in the title? And the authors are very passionate about the meaningfulness of that finding, disease variant association, say. Was it in the abstract in palette of other variant disease associations? Was it mentioned in a one line in the full text or was it a component of a table? All of the, that sort of place in the in the article is was one mechanism. Another mechanism is how thoroughly did the authors describe the variant right. uh, or, the right. or the gene? If they talked about it dozens of times, that's an indicator to us that a lot of thought went into what that variant may mean. And presumably the editors and the reviewers of that article agreed. And so the term frequency is, a, is another mechanism. But then the last mechanism that starts to dovetail on artificial intelligence proper is how the biomarker, the gene or the variant being mentioned in the paper, how it is mentioned in the context of the other components of that paper, things like diagnostic, prognostic significance, other drugs. Was it mentioned in a table that talks about segregation? Was it mentioned in a table uh, or a figure that talks about functional relevance? And so we decorate our evidence um, in the mastermind data set with all of these clinical and functionally significant annotations, and then use that information to make presumptions about what the authors are claiming in the paper. But then we always follow up with a main review. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Uh, let me shift gears a little bit. Uh, I actually have sort of genome, your website open, and I see kind of the application video going. And it, it made me think to ask about how you treat population demographics. So, you know, one of the, the kind of ongoing critiques of genomic medicine is that, at least to date, most of the genomic profiling has been done on, on you know, mostly Northern European descendant. Um, and even the, the really successful big sort of national genome projects to date have mostly been from these kinds of countries. I see that changing, but I'm, I'm curious to know how you currently handle population demographics. And I also would love just kind of a general opinion on where the world is headed in terms of genomic medicine and making it more democratic and more accessible. In the curation projects that we do, uh, I'll give you a representative example. The clients that we work with start out with a disease or a sort of set of diseases, for instance, for which they have a drug compound that combats the genetic pathway that's disrupted in those diseases. So the question is, what are the genes that are associated with these diseases and what are the variants in those genes that confer that disease? And give me the interpretation. So give me all of the bad actors and separate those bad actors from the passengers who are just along for the ride. And I bring that up because one of the ways that you can very quickly triage the variants that are found in the literature or that are found in your patient sequencing data is by population frequency. And so that's part of the AC framework. And those population can be different depending on ethnicity and, and geographic location. So part of the triad of evidence that I talked about incorporates that population frequency. And we take a very conservative approach when we're calling the pathogenicity of a variant so that we take into account those different population frequencies. So if there's a very high frequency of a mutation in a given population, we make the presumption that the patient that's being seen who has that variant may very well be from that population. We always present the evidence that was found. If that variant was found in a cohort study or there was a functional study that was performed on that variant, we always show that evidence, but we don't want to overcall the pathogenicity of a variant, especially if it's high in given ethnic group. And so, so that's the way that Mastermind deals with the different population 
frequency representations of specific variants is to take a very cautious approach to what patient, what the ethnic dispatch of a patient may be when they're seen in, in the sequencing, for instance, of a clinical trial. To writ large, I mean, what I'm seeing is um, what you're seeing as well, is that there's an increased movement to get more and more underrepresented uh, populations enfolded into some of these databases. So not just across the world, but even subpopulations within different countries. So for instance, African-American populations are fairly underrepresented. And I know that there's a number of grant initiatives to collect more of that data because we all respond to disease differently and we've all inherited genes differentially from our ethnic background. And so there's those movements that I champion. And when that information is promulgated into the literature or into the databases, we take that up and um, use that information advisably in making our conclusions. I also know that there's initiatives internationally in Asia, Asian distributions in particular to get more of those populations, to get more of their data so that we can understand what's going on from a variant perspective in disease progression. So you probably are, you may be more familiar than I am, but when we were perhaps graduate students or maybe even postdocs, there was DECODE, which came out of the sequencing efforts in Scandinavia, where there's really um, very thoroughly documented pedigree information, lineage analysis, and it's a relatively isolated population. And so the diseases that exist in that population would tend to cluster. And they, I think, made a fantastic benefit of that data. And we're starting to see that happen in other countries that are much larger than that Scandinavian country like China, where they're sitting on a virtual goldmine of empirical information, mm -hmm. how the genetics informs disease. And right. so um, the government issues notwithstanding in China, I feel like there's great potential to learn a lot about um, the way that our genetic inheritance informs disease that is going to result from some of these very, very large and ambitious sequencing initiatives. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic of that too. And I love that you take a very kind of historical uh, view of this starting, you know, of course, with the first genome and then thinking about how NGS has, has changed that. Where do you see the field of genomic medicine moving? I mean, certainly we can generate more data, but, you know, we have to contend with the silos issue, right? So each stakeholder kind of wants to maximize the value extraction from those data themselves before sharing it. How do, how do you see, you know, walking into the doctor's office in five years uh, with tools like genomic and others evolving? It's a very broad question, and I, a couple of things came to mind, so let me see if I can't come up with something interesting to respond. So I've, I've often thought, as I was going through my training, I, I was a molecular genetic pathologist fellow, and I often thought that there will eventually be a primary practice discipline where you would see the genomicist. There would be sort of scheduled points in your life where you would have your DNA, your genome sequenced, and depending on what stage of life you're at, the genomicist would triage who you see next and, and why. So in the newborn state, we obviously have newborn screening. Well, we can, we can get much higher resolution with genome sequencing now that it's cost effective as a screening tool. So in newborn sequencing, to, to help right out of the gate to determine which patients would benefit from early needed intervention to save their lives. And then when the patient reaches the age of autonomy at 18, they can make the determination as to whether they want to know about some of these diseases diseases or disease risk alleles that may inform their health care into the future. I'm thinking of things like um, neurodegenerative diseases, say that we don't yet know what to do about them from a treatment perspective, but certainly could inform how one lives their lives. Some patients are adamantly against knowing 
that and other patients avidly consume that information and that's up to them. So at age 18, when they reach autonomy, they could decide to understand that much more fully as a result of cost efficiencies and next generation sequencing, but also in the improved interpretability of that information with tools like Mastermind. And then moving forward, there will be um, genome sequencing initiatives to do pre-symptomatic screening for cancer with liquid biopsies. So this is particularly in the area of genomics where before the development of symptoms, which to be honest is typically from mass effect where the cancer is just sort of crowding out the normal functioning other organs, uh, if we could detect cancer pre-symptomatically when it's small and when the burden of therapy is greatly reduced and we can keep a better bead on its progression, that would absolutely revolutionize cancer care. And I can imagine that you would, in addition to having a colonoscopy and, a, and possibly a, a mammography, you would have liquid biopsy to pre-screen you for the risk that you already have a cancer before it becomes manifest at the clinical level. The, the cautionary note there is that only recently have we been able to get this deep sequencing information. And so we're seeing molecular lesions that we used to think were exclusively associated with cancer. Right. And we don't want to, as clinicians, run the risk of being reactionary and, and trying to treat unnecessarily if the patient has the molecular lesion but may not have a frank cancer. And so we need more evidence to know whether that's a, a situation that merits intervention. And if so, when in fact is that tipping point? So that's um, the genomicist view. If you talk about more of the sort of data and interpretation side, what I'm thinking will happen, and we're seeing it borne out, is that we're going to get better understanding of how our genetics informs not just our health or disease status, but also things like personality, things like psychiatric disease. I feel like that is truly an untapped potential aspect of health and medicine that is ripe for um, improved understanding because of genetic and genomic sequencing. So particularly in very common diseases like depression and anxiety, the treatments now are empirical, right? You test and you see, and if it doesn't work, if if you don't get a response and you try another thing, and those cycles can take months. And the responses are typically self-reported and obviously can be influenced by circumstance. And so if we had a better way to diagnose psychiatric disorders and a better way to predict response to those psychiatric disorders mm-hmm. to drugs predicated on concrete empirical evidence like genome information. I feel like that's going to revolutionize that one pocket of medicine. And I don't, I feel like it's a, it's simply because the focus early on had been so much on understanding oncology and, and rightly so. Now it's moving toward rare uh, disease and again, rightly so. And I feel like the next wave will be in these types of disciplines. Now that we feel like we have a pretty good handle on where oncology and rare disease is going. We're going to start to tackle these otherwise impenetrable, potentially polygenic diseases like, say, diabetes and and pediatric disorders. I think those are great insights. I'd like to unpack a couple. First, I'd just say that I've gotten to know a little bit uh, some very ambitious uh, founders uh, at the company called True Genomics. These are are, uh, veterans of the military working on diagnostics for PTSD, and I'd love to have those guys on the show sometime. You had mentioned this idea of clinical restraint. So just because you can measure it doesn't mean you necessarily want to treat it. And I think there are two really interesting contrasting data points that just came out. So at ASCO this year, uh, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, Grail, which is one of the leading liquid biopsy companies, had some really promising
promising results for 12 different cancers with early stage detection. And that's phenomenal. They've made a huge investment and it, it looks like they're really starting to make some headway. Um, on the flip side, there was a paper just, I think last week, uh, there was an RNA-seq study showing that there are loads of you know, tumors <laughs> essentially in yeah. somatic tissue all over the body. And that just happens. You know, I was actually an evolutionary biologist once and there's some really interesting theories that are fairly well borne out of, of why that happens in older tissue. And so uh, you know, your point is well taken. When I describe to my friends, my my relatives who don't who aren't as steeped in genetics as I am or in clinical medicine, and I tell them it's quite sobering, but I tell them we're basically ticking time bombs, right? Your your cells are dividing so frequently in ways that you can't even imagine, and they're not doing they're not dividing their DNA as faithfully as you had <laughs> high school biology. And so there are just situations in which you get unlucky, right? You, you get un just plain unlucky enough to have one of those cells go rogue and create a clone that then evolves in its typical process of accelerated division, and then you develop a cancer. And so you, you, it's quite right. I, I'm following pretty closely what Grail is doing. It's just a, a bit of a compensatory pause to say, just because we can doesn't mean we should treat. We need to have the evidence collected to know that it's improving outcomes and that not acting is going to be detrimental. So, and, and we're, we're as a community of researchers and clinicians getting much better at taking insight and making it actionable much faster than in previous decades. And that's really exciting to see. It's not just limited to genomics, but I think it's a really good exemplar of that accelerated pace of insight to actionability. Maybe I can ask you another very general question, just see kind of what interests you in it. Where, where do you see the role of regulation in, I'll just, again, I'll call it genomic medicine. And I, there are actually sort of two parts to it. There's the ability to test and then presumably treat. And then I'm actually really interested in the regulation of analytics tools, especially when we start thinking about machine learning and AI. You know, what happens, of course, when you retrain the model? <laughs> One yeah. of the virtues of machine learning in principle is it gets smarter the more it learns, but that also means that it's not a, it's not a fixed state. It's not static. Yeah, well, let me tackle the, the second question first there, because um, I think I have more interesting things to say about it, because that's the sort of space that we're in. So our approach to AI is to never have a black box result. So if there's, you're seeing this actually in AI generally, AI platforms, the need to have transparency into what they're doing. And it's certain machine learning, deep learning models they don't have any transparency whatsoever, at least not until very recent moves in this direction. So when you're dealing with clinical medicine, if you're a clinician and you don't know why you're doing what you're being told to do, you probably shouldn't be a clinician. And so um, the way that we deliver the information in Mastermind is always predicated on human readable evidence. Evidence is critical. And what problem that we're solving at Genominum is the organization, annotation, and presentation of that evidence. We are going so far as to making claims about what that evidence means, but we feel very strongly that our users, both in clinic uh, and in pharma situations, should be the ultimate arbiter of that information. So when you talk about regulation um, of analytic tools, I feel like evidence has to have primacy. I don't care about your p-values, and I don't care about previous circumstances in which your algorithms were successful, we, if we're intervening um, in patient care, have to understand the reason that that evidence percolated to the top. And if we don't understand that, then it should be our goal to understand that before we intervene. 
So uh, that's what I'll say about that is that evidence should dominate and be required. I've given talks before about AI where I said that if, if you're a healthcare company and you're saying that you're doing AI, that's tantamount to saying that we are a research company who's doing science. It's basically a meaningless term and it, it's fine if that's your marketing message, but I think we as consumers of that information in the clinic or you know in the ecosystem of genomic commercial entities, we should demand a, a deeper level of scrutiny as to what that exactly means. What's your data input? What's your approach to understanding what that data means and how are you proving it to us? How are you validating that that, that information is correct? Those are three critical components to ensure that we're not going to have, say, data style Theranos situation where there's companies that are hyped up with their sophisticated AI capability and the amount of money that they've raised, but there's no there there. And I feel like where, where it impacts patient care is where we have to be particularly cautious. Yeah, I think that's a great word of caution. I'll, I'll just take this opportunity to plug again an organization I'm involved in called the Alliance for AI and Healthcare. And we're sort of trying to tackle some of these issues on, on its head, both thinking very prospectively on how, how we'd like to work with the government on regulatory issues, but also how we think about industry and market education around you know what's real science and, and what's kind of name calling and obviously leaning with a strong favor towards the, the real science. I'm, I'm a bit curious just from your own journey. So you were an MD, PhD in the lab and you decided to venture into the software world. How did, how did that catalyze? Who'd you start working with to write code? I was forced to. And so genomenon actually is Greek and it means I had to be born. And I was tasked with understanding these VCF files that came out of our sequencing efforts to profile hematopoietic malignancy. Which is an unsolved problem, by the way, unsolved, you know, understanding VCF files. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> right. So I was not pleased with commercially available tools because I kept having to ask the same question over and over again. So open source tools for doing the um, variant mapping and variant calling, those were excellent. They're, and they're, uh, whatever fault you could have found with them then, they're getting much better, more accurate variant mapping and calling. But the real thing, the real challenge that I saw was in helping me as a biologist, not as a data person, but as a biologist, understanding what to do with all this information. Because as you know, there's a real disconnect between biology and informatics. And and the bridge there is bioinformaticians, bioinformatics, but you still have this challenge where bioinformatics can either be really good at informatics and just sort of passable on the biology, or even more rarely, really good at the biology, but only passable at the informatics. And so I, I took it upon myself against the advice of colleagues to really understand the informatics challenges. And I didn't see that any solutions were forthcoming for the challenges that were really dogging me in my research. So I just started coding on my own. And I'm proud to say, actually, that I learned Perl. <laughs> and I learned by um, watching YouTube tutorials and Googling when I had a problem. And it was the best way to learn how to code because I had a need. Yeah. Well, I'd, say, I'd say two things. Perl props. I, I was on the Perl boat as well. And right. I think coders today still learn by Googling. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, was, I was so impressed with how this sort of universe of capability opened up when I just typed in a really specific question. And there were 50 people who'd had that question before. 
And one of them was kind enough to give us an answer. And then I got to the next question. It was a sort of beautiful, experiential way to learn how to code. And I just got more and more ambitious with what I was doing and what I wanted to try to do. And when I looked up from you know the papers that I was publishing as a result, I said, I've really got something here that I don't see extant in the commercial space. And where I was grooming myself to become a professor through my MD, PhD training, I said, I think the time couldn't be more propitious to start commercial entity to solve this very specific, you know, genomic interpretation problem with some of the tools that I've built. That's, that's got to be a good feeling to see a really slick and usable interface from something that started out as a bunch of Perl code held together with yeah, chewing gum and paper clips. And I don't mean to crap on your code. I'm just guessing it was held together with chewing gum and paper clips. Oh, no, it was terrible. I, um, <laughs> was blushed, like I blushed at the thought of, <laughs> of what it looked like. And now it's, I'll give a shout out to my CTO. He speaks my language, right? He, he, he immersed himself in biology and the ways of bioinformatics as they existed before we started Genomenon. And he really was able to understand the problem and he is a genius when it comes to building solutions to solve those problems and so he and I have it's almost like we share you know the same thought patterns we, we can communicate pretty effortlessly and I feel like that has also been a critical component of our success. Yeah co-founder chemistry is maybe a slightly overlooked aspect of, of this race we're running for sure. It's, it's actually when you think about the, the likelihood of a successful startup, it comes ultimately down to timing, right? Have you hit the market too early and there's there's nobody who's buying? Or have you hit the market too late and it's too crowded? So all that's true. But I, I feel like the way that you self-implode as a startup is when you as co-founders or early employees don't get along, right? Don't see eye to eye and don't have the personality types to weather the storms that inevitably come. If you found a good co-founder like that, who you can rise to challenges together and, and weather problems together and continue to enjoy what you're doing, then I feel like you've really got a, a magic recipe there for success. And we've definitely got that in Genomenon. Have you seen yourself becoming a, a, an entrepreneur going into startup when you were, I don't know, entering grad school? Or, or at what point did it kind of click that this was something you'd like to give a go? Absolutely not. Not at all. So right up until the last several months of my fellowship, I was planning on, I even went on interviews, I was planning on taking on a professorship. So I came very late to the game. I came late to coding and I came very late to the entrepreneurship game. In a way that's good because I have domain expertise. I mean, all of the, in a half of the training that I went through, really understanding the subject matter, that obviously has been invaluable. I wish, absent that, I wish I could have come to it sooner because I, I really like, you brought this up, I really like seeing my ideas come to life and being used to great effect by others. That's very, very satisfying. And it, it's a different sort of high than you get when you publish in research. So I did pretty well in my graduate school at a number of pretty um, successful studies and widely cited papers. This is just a different type of gratification. It's much more immediately impactful. Mm -hmm. Science moves at even in a brisk field like genomics, it still moves very glacially from you know place to place very slowly. But I feel like in entrepreneurship and in commercializing some of these ideas, you can you can see an inflection point from you know year one to year two that you couldn't have imagined would happen when you just started out. And that's that's truly what we're seeing with our successful commercialization of, of Mastermind. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes, though, you have to even look back to realize how far you've come. I mean, six months can simultaneously go by in a flash and feel glacial. And when you realize that six months ago, you didn't even have a thing launched or the, the feature set was a lot thinner or whatever. It's a good feeling for sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're starting to talk a little bit more about entrepreneurship here, I feel like um, when do you stop being a startup? I, I'll go back to what I said before. We're, we're properly not a startup anymore, I feel. And the inflection point there was when there were things that were happening in my company that I had almost nothing to do with. As a founder, that's really gratifying to me because it's, it suggests a level of maturity that you didn't have before. And when I look at the faces of the people that I work with, I see that they're just as dedicated to our success as I was and still am early on. That is, again, when you know that you, you've really got an engine. And when you're no longer a startup, when you have other people who are, who are just as passionate and working just as hard on aspects that you are, aren't aware of anymore, that's very satisfying. I think that's a, a wonderful parting thought. Um, I've already taken more of your time than I said I would, and I think we could probably do this for another couple hours, but maybe we'll wait for the next, uh, the next conference. Mark, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate the time, and uh, I look forward to following your success going forward. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. This has been Episode 12 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for listening.